So what is the pro-life syllogism? Here it is. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. Welcome listeners to this episode of the Scripture and Plain Reason podcast. An engaging podcast where we discuss the authority and clarity of Scripture. God's Word is true and God's Word is clear. My name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. My name is Scott. Scott, welcome back to part two. So great to have you back here with us and talking to our listeners. Good to be back with you, gentlemen. All right, we're going to jump right in. My first question, and and I have a follow-up after, but I I want to start with this question. What is the most difficult pro-abortion argument that you typically have to answer? We need to distinguish between questions that are difficult in terms of emotional difficulty versus intellectual difficulty. The pro-life issue is not complex intellectually. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. That is not a complex argument and nothing of objection that goes against that syllogism I just gave you is difficult intellectually. However, there are psychological difficulties where somebody says, well, what about the poor woman who's been raped? What about the poor, you know, 14-year-old that is facing the loss of her education and uh, her boyfriend's dumping her and uh, her parents don't understand? We've got to be very careful as apologists that we don't come off as people who have no heart. Now, we don't need to compromise to do this, but we do need to be careful. So what I always do when people bring up, for example, rape, my first response is empathy. Usually the pro-lifer responds with statistics. Oh, well, most women who get raped don't get pregnant. That's just the wrong answer at that moment. It may be factually true, but it's not going to win you any points. So my first reaction is to say, you know what? You're right. That person who's been raped has suffered a terrible injustice and uh, will never fully understand the pain they feel. And you're also right that every time that mother looks at that child, she may remember what she went through. You're right about that. Given you and I agree on that, how do you think a civil society ought to treat innocent human beings that remind us of a painful event? And then I just let the question hang there for a moment. And then I can follow up by gently saying, is it okay to intentionally kill them so we can feel better? In other words, does hardship justify homicide? That's the question. And I want the person to wrestle with that. Now, what I call the inquirer is going to begin to follow my logic at that point. She's intellectually honest. She's heard the pro-life argument. She's just trying to think, okay, how do I make this fit into a real concern for my 14-year-old niece who, if she got raped, I'd feel awful if she had to carry to term. But at least she's following the argument here that hardship doesn't justify homicide. The crusader brings up rape exactly as we talked about in the previous show. He brings it up not because he cares about an honest answer. He brings it up because he wants to make the pro-lifer look bad. And there we need to do exactly what we mentioned before, call his bluff. So I'm going to look at the crusader and say, okay, you'd like to have me deal with this rape issue. I'm going to do it. But first, I want to ask you a question. If we agree 
Not that it's my position, but if we agree to allow exceptions for rape, will you then join us in opposing all other abortions? And of course, the answer is always no. And the comeback will be, no, women have a fundamental right to an abortion. Okay, defend that. If a woman has a fundamental right to an abortion, here's what that means. Let's be clear. A fundamental right cannot be infringed upon. That means a woman has a right to an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, no questions asked. If she wants a dead child, she gets a dead child. Is that your position? If so, why don't you defend that rather than hiding behind rape victims? And I think that's how we deal with these hard questions. Now, having said that, I'm not claiming there are not any intellectual challenges to the pro-life view that we need to take seriously, but I don't find them to be particularly difficult the way the psychological objections are. And in our culture today that thinks and learns visually, it's the psychological objections we've got to tread carefully on. Really helpful. So crystal clear. And Scott, I'm just going to give a quick follow-up on that and specific to examples where ending the life of a child in the womb would be morally okay and or biblical. Are there any examples that exist? One of the things I train pro-lifers to do right out of the gate is to focus on the three most important words in pro-life apologetics. And here they are, and your listeners may want to grab a pen and pencil unless they're driving and write them down. Here's the first word, syllogism. Some of you are going, what? What did he just say? Is that, did he just speak in tongues? I mean, what is that? What do you mean by syllogism? Syllogism is simply a couple of premises followed by a conclusion. For example, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. Notice there's a premise, a premise, and a conclusion. Well, pro-lifers have a syllogism that I'm going to give you in just a moment. Second most important word in pro-life apologetics, syllogism. Any prophets out there want to guess what the third one's going to be? Yeah, <laughs> syllogism. Now, why do I say this, gentlemen? Because if you don't stick to your pro-life syllogism, which I'm about to give you, critics will change the subject and you will find yourself chasing a million bunny trails. It also means you won't be clear. You've got to have something you anchor your argument in. And our syllogism is where we do just that. So what is the pro-life syllogism? Here it is. Premise one. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is wrong. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore, it's wrong. Now, let's then take that syllogism and apply it to a hard case like the mother's life being in danger from pregnancy. And we actually have a case that I can think of where that's true. Take ectopic pregnancy, where the embryo implants on the inner wall of the fallopian tube, that narrow tube leading to the uterine cavity, rather than the uterine cavity itself. As that embryo grows in that tube, the risk to the mother is obvious. As that embryo grows, that tube will burst. The mother dies from hemorrhaging to death. The child dies because it's too young to live without the mother. So you're a pro-life doctor. A patient presents herself with an ectopic pregnancy. Do you do nothing and face the strong possibility of losing two humans, or do you act in such a way that you save one life, even though the unintended but foreseen result is the death of the embryo? Well, I'm going to act to save the mother. I've had critics say this to me in, in debates. Oh, there goes your whole case. 
You are then in favor of some abortions. No, nope, no. Nope. Let's go back to our syllogism. Remember what I said? Syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. I did not argue that it was always wrong to take life. I argued that it was wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion does that. Therefore, it's wrong. As a doctor acting to save this mother's life, I do not intend the death of her human embryo. I foresee it in that in removing the embryo, he cannot survive outside the womb, but I don't intend his death. With abortion, I not only foresee the death of the unborn, I intend the death of the unborn. So the two are not parallel. And it's vitally important we keep our pro-life syllogism in mind so that we don't get accused of being inconsistent here. No, we're not. We're being completely consistent with our syllogism. We argued it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that. Therefore, it's wrong. Surgery to correct an ectopic pregnancy is not the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Hey, Scott, I wanted to ask you to, if you would, I've noticed that you shared this on two or three of the interviews that I have watched. You talked about how you were impressed by the Lord to go into pro-life apologetics, and I wanted you to share that. And then connected to that, I've noticed something that you do, and you did it on this good faith debates. You're great with logic, you're great with a syllogism, but you often bring in a story that engages people. And then by the time you're done with the story, you're like, wait, okay, I was emotionally invested in that. And now I also see the flaws of my own logic. And it just really set the topic up. So my my twofold question is, how did you get into pro-life apologetics? If you could just let our listeners know that story. And also, why do you use stories and how effective do you think they are? Yeah, no, let me take that second question about stories first, if you don't mind. Absolutely. In a culture like ours that thinks and learns visually, where its primary epistemology is imagery rather than propositional arguments, it's important that we change how people feel about abortion as a predicate to changing how they think and ultimately behave. Now, this is not an excuse to ditch logic. It just means we're going to start by changing how people feel as a predicate to changing how they think and ultimately act. So I have found it very helpful, for example, to use abortion imagery that depicts abortion to change how people feel, to use stories to set up an argument where we tap into what people already believe to be true and use stories to reawaken their moral imagination. And by the way, there's nothing new about this. Go back to the slavery uh, issue in the 1860s. The great abolitionist Frederick Douglass would tell People like Abraham Lincoln, uh, Mr. President, your arguments against slavery are sound, they're valid, they're quite frankly, you can't refute them. There's only one problem. The nation is yawning. Nobody cares. So we need thunder, Mr. President. We need fire to reawaken the moral conscience of the nation. And stories, visuals can help do that. We don't use them in place of good arguments. We use them as valuable adjuncts to good arguments, just the way a teacher who lectures on the Vietnam War will use imagery of children running naked from a village that's just been napalmed. The purpose is not to manipulate. It's to convey truths that words alone never could convey. It's the same idea why you and me and others went and paid money to go see films like The Passion of the Christ, like Saving Private Ryan, like Hacksaw Ridge, 
uh, Schindler's List. Why did we pay money to go watch these gruesome images on the screen? Well, I know why. Because they conveyed truths that words alone simply cannot. And the abortion issue is no different. So in using stories, using abortion victim imagery, we're using it not as a manipulation tool, but to convey truths that change how people feel as a predicate to changing how they think. Regarding imagery changing how people feel, which ultimately changes how they think and behave, I am exhibit A of that. In fall of 1990, if you had asked me, are you pro-life, when I was an associate minister at a church in Southern California, I would have told you, of course, no doubt about it. But my pro-life activity, gentlemen, was once a year going to the local pregnancy center banquet, giving an obligatory hundred bucks and going home. That was pretty much it. I said I opposed abortion, but I wasn't lifting a finger to stop it. Well, that all changed in November of 1990 when the local pregnancy center director invited me and indeed pestered me until I agreed to show up to a breakfast where a speaker who had been a former member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, a guy by the name of Greg Cunningham, showed an image of abortion. He showed an eight-minute video of abortion while he gave a very persuasive pro-life talk. And I thought, I like this guy. He doesn't hurt the ears to listen to. But when he showed that video, gentlemen, I wept. I, I thought, I'm no different than the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road. I say I care about this, but I'm not lifting a finger to stop it. And I went home that day and I said to my wife, I think my whole life has changed. And I took that VHS tape he showed. VHS tapes, by the way, were these rectangular plastic. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware of them. Um, yeah, yeah you, you, we probably are aware of those at our age. But I showed her that video and she's like, hey, whatever you, you want to do, I'm with you. And bottom line, six months later, I had resigned my associate pastor's position with the blessing of the senior pastor and the church to pursue how I might train Christians to make a case for the pro-life view. But it was the imagery that changed how I felt that was the predicate necessary to change how I ultimately thought and behaved on the issue. I wanted to ask, Scott, you already mentioned the syllogism, but I, I wanted to just get your thoughts on the pushback that we often hear is that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, if there will be so many back alley abortions, the kind of the, I think you call it the coat hanger argument in your book on the case for life. Uh, how do you answer that? That if this is overturned, now we're going to be responsible for all kinds of illegal, dangerous abortions. Well, notice the argument assumes the unborn are not human, because otherwise what the critic is saying is that because some people die attempting to intentionally kill other innocent human beings, we ought to make it safe and legal for them to do it. But this is a bogus argument. We don't legalize felonies to make it safer for those that want to do them. It only works if you begin with the assumption the unborn are not one of us, but that's what the whole debate is about. Look, any woman who dies from an abortion is a tragedy. We all agree on that. But to say we ought to make it legal to intentionally kill other innocent human beings so that those who do the killing can do it safely raises the question, safe for whom? Is it safe for the child? It only works if we begin with the assumption the unborn aren't human. But it's also factually untrue that women are going to die by the thousands. Will some die? Yes. But five to 10,000 a year? No. Uh, I'm going to give you four sources that refute the claim 
that women died by the thousands prior to Roe v. Wade from illegal abortions, and not one of them is going to be a pro-life source. Source number one, Daniel Callahan in his book, Abortion, Law, Morality, and Choice. Callahan of the Hastings Institute argued as a pro-choicer that the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year from illegal abortion could not possibly be true in any reasonable universe because 40,000 women die annually from all causes who are of reproductive age. To say that five to 10,000 come from one source, illegal abortion, is complete nonsense. Dr. Christopher Teets, Planned Parenthood's statistician, argued that the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year couldn't possibly be true. It was insane to make such a claim. Dr. Mary Calderon, third source, argued in an American Journal of Public Health that the claim of thousands dying from illegal abortion was nonsense because the one who is performing the illegal abortion most often is not a guy with an illegal rusty coat hanger. It's a doctor in good standing in his community. In fact, she argued 90% of all abortions that are done illegally are done by guys who are physicians in their local community who simply skirt the issue. And Dr. Calderon is worth noting because at the time she made that claim, she was Planned Parenthood's medical director back in the early 1960s. The fourth source is Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who co-founded NARAL. While he was still pro-abortion, I realized he changed his view later, but while he was still pro-abortion, he candidly admitted that the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year was completely made up of thin air and the press bought it. So there's four sources that refute the claim, none of whom are pro-life, but I would also point to a current example. In Texas, abortion has been de facto illegal for about seven months now, thanks to their heartbeat bill. And what we've noted is that abortion rates have dropped by 60% almost overnight. And that's you can find that at political and other sources that are not pro-life. The law has had a huge effect at curtailing abortion. In fact, that rate's dropping even more since then. There's been no bloodbath in the streets. We don't have reports of women dying by the thousands. It's simply untrue that most women will disregard the law. No, most women will follow the law. In fact, we now have additional research saying that most women aren't going to travel long distances to get abortions. They're not as desperate as people want us to believe they're desperate to have these abortions. So this idea that there's going to be a bloodbath and it's on the pro-lifer, if there is one, is bogus. Great. Well, Scott, I think this last question is a good one to wrap up with. And I think this gets to some of the outcomes for what we as Christians can do uh, with regards to pro-life. And I would love for you to share maybe just a few sound bites with our listeners on how our listeners can become better apologists for life. All right. Well, First, they can get a book like my book, The Case for Life. But before they go to Amazon to get The Case for Life, let me give them a takeaway for today. Here's how to defend your pro-life view in a minute or less. And you can time me on this. Suppose your Aunt Betty visits you. She's not a Christian. She's at your Thanksgiving table. She thinks pro-life is stupid. And you are sitting there trying to be charitable to her. And finally, she drops her fork and says, now, I just have to ask you, why are you pro-life? Here's what you're going to say in a minute or less. Start the clock. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. 
And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and mature. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Now, I think I got that done in under a minute. You probably noticed I did not cite Bible verses, but did I communicate biblical truth? Yes. And that's our job. That's your job, listeners, is to convey that biblical truth. Wow. So well said. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been a a great learning experience for me, and I really appreciate you joining the podcast today. Thank you, guys. It was a joy to be with you. Thank you, Scott. This has been excellent. My name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. And my name is Scott, which doesn't rhyme with Brian or Ryan. (laughs) Join us next time for more scripture and plain reason. The scriptures are true and the scriptures are clear. 